The book of Malachi, when spiritual intimacy feels elusive, the title I chose for tonight is Restoring What's Been Wasted and Preserving What Is Yet to Be. Restoring What's Been Wasted and Preserving What Is Yet to Be. And I think probably in most of our lives, those two needs exist, I would think. It's a strange text, one that doesn't seem to suit the need that Malachi is going to address, but I'm hoping to show you before we're done why he writes the way he writes. Malachi chapter 3, 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Okay, so the idea here is They've been wicked in so many ways. We've been studying that. They aren't consumed because God says, I don't change. And he says, children of Jacob, there's a covenant in place here. The only thing that has ensured their existence up to this point, rather than being wiped out by Almighty God, is God, I I keep my covenant. Seven. And he's going to make a point now that it's sure not because of their righteousness that they aren't consumed. Verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. In other words, for this is a pattern. That's what the text says. This is for a long, long time. There are times when you occasionally fall. You think of Peter and you weep and you repent. That's not the case. This has been generational. I just realized I didn't put my watch on. That means, whoa. You heard about the, never mind. Guy who went to church with a friend. Friend had a little kid. They hadn't been to church before. They're sitting there. What? What is that? Oh, that's communion. They have little grape juice, little wafers. Oh, okay. What's that mean? Well, that's Jesus died for your sins. What's that? Well, that's baptism. Jesus said to baptize him. Picture of the old life dying and the new life. Guy gets up to preach and he takes off his watch and he puts it on the pulpit and the kid goes, what's that mean? And the guy goes, absolutely nothing. He says. (laughs) From the days, verse 7, of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. You've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. Those have to be some of the most gracious words in all of Scripture. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Eight, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So it's tithes, but not just tithes. Tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe. Tithe means tenth. If you didn't know that, someone thinks they're being clever and they say, I tithe 5%. You can't. Tithe means tenth. You can't tenth 5%. You know what I mean? Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, ten that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you. You know these words. 
pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it shall not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. It's a text that churches, especially pastors, like to use whenever they think they need money in the church. And I don't think that's the right use. And I want to talk about why. I want to talk about what's really being addressed here. Up to this point, the book of Malachi has just been an example of what we've come to call strong medicine. It's not the kind of book that helps you win friends and influence people. Right from the start, God has reprimanded the priests in Malachi's day and the people. The people, because they were not long back in the land, getting back on their feet financially, and they would bring not the best of their flock for sacrifice. They would bring what they thought was going to die off soon anyway. And the priests wanted the people coming to the temple. It's no good if the place is empty. And so the priests were saying, well, that's fine. So the people were sinning, and the priests were wanting to have a message that people wanted to hear. Nobody wants to say stuff people don't want to hear. You get in trouble that way. And so the whole thing had become corrupt. Now we come to a passage that shows God's love and mercy. Right after saying, you people, since your fathers and your father's fathers, there's been nothing but sin and rebellion. You've not walked in my ways. You've known them and rejected them for generations. And right in the middle of it, God's got this message of mercy, right in the middle of their rebellion. Perhaps more than anything, these Verses show what the believer's attitude to God's rebuke and correction and chastening should be. Why has God been dealing so strongly with the people, and what does he expect them to do? So point number one. There's an invitation right in the middle of the rebuke. Six and seven of chapter three. For I, the Lord, do not change. And therefore, O children of Jacob, you're not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes, have not kept them. Return to me. Just return. Come, come back. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how? How are we going to return? Now, I want to talk about two different facts that are sort of contrasted in these verses. First, there's been just this consistent pattern of rebellion from the people of God, even from the days of Abraham. People have never had a consistent heart to follow God. I was thinking in the New Testament. Stephen, in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, not saying the thing you're supposed to say. Look at these words. Acts 7, 51. You stiff-necked people. This is Stephen saying to the leaders who hold his life in their hands, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And you're thinking, Stephen, just dial it back a notch. You guys always grieve the Holy Spirit and so do your fathers. And so the Lord says through Malachi to these people, there has never been time 
when you seem serious about following me? What do you do with people like that? You never did seem to love me with all your heart. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And of course, all of that was designed to point the way toward the gospel. A new covenant would come that would provide new hearts. But at this point, the people felt the guilt and the weight and the condemnation of their resistance, their disobedience to God. So, what does God, through the prophet Malachi, say that people should do? What, what do you do with people like that? What would be in your heart leading people like that? They just never listened. They never cared. They always rebelled. They never took God seriously. What are you going to say to them? Well, I know what I'd do. I'd just write them off. That's what I'd do. B said there were two contrasting facts. There's still an unexplainable mercy in the heart of God for these rebellious people. The reason you're not destroyed in a blinding, white-hot fit of holy rage is that I haven't changed in my undying love, my commitment, my covenant with you. And maybe maybe what we maybe need most to hear tonight in this message is that God's heart still hasn't changed. There's something in this. People who bring half their hearts These people in Malachi's day who were rebellious in their hearts, who would question God, who would argue with God over and over again. These people who married pagan wives, who worshipped idols. People who divorced the wife of their youth. People who in this passage would rob God of what was rightfully his. What is the word of the Lord to people like that? In fact, what is his word to people who who go weeks and don't have devotions, who have more time for Netflix than the things of God? People who wish they were living better Christian lives than they are. People who can think of the unkind things they said to their spouse. People who watch things on the internet that they should never watch. What, what, what does God say to people like we? He says, return to me. Return to me and I will return to you right this minute. It seems too good to be true. Sure, there are things you can't do over. There are things you can't change. Some opportunities are lost. But if you'll start right now, God says, not too late. Come, just come back to me. I wonder how many people, I don't mean in this church, I mean in the church, this Sunday across Canada, coast to coast, how many people need seriously to hear that if you'll just return to me, I'll return to you? What difference would it make in tens of thousands of lives? Well, Pastor Don, there's judgment, you know, for people who persist in sin like that. Yeah, yeah, you you get no argument from me. There surely is, 
There's always judgment for people who sin and refuse to repent and come out of that. But that's not the only message I want I want us to get out of this text. There's another message. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, if you have a heart for it, you, you can return, come back. And so we're meant to behold, I think, just the, the truly amazing nature of a holy God towards sinful people. How can that be? The beauty of knowing the constancy of his character in the middle of telling the absolute truth about holiness and sin. There's no whitewashing anything. The standard is high. God doesn't use, God does not use it to club and beat repentant people. We always should rejoice that the Bible doesn't just say, here's your sin. It does do that doesn't just say, here's your sin. It says, here's the way back. And I know it's a bit of a smaller group tonight, and I know most of you, but I know what our hearts are like. And for all of us, whatever the Lord deals with your heart about at any time that isn't quite right, don't just sit on that. However long you've been following the Lord, return, admit, confess, Never delay. Return to me, I'll return to you. I would submit that we all need to hear that sometimes. We all need to hear that sometimes. Now the strange part of the text. This wonderful promise. And now point number two. Okay, how is this to be done? And why this strange set of instructions? How can I return to God? Malachi Three, last part of verse 7. Here's the question. How shall we return? Now, the pro- God speaks through the prophet. Here's the reply. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Well, in your tithes and contributions. Here's my question. You can answer me out loud if you want. Is this the only thing we've seen these people doing wrong in this book? No, no, it's not. We've looked at all sorts of things they're doing wrong. Immorality, idolatry, divorce. So why, when he says, here's how you return, why here? Like, why not say, you need to pray more? Study the law. Get serious about family devotions. I mean, I can think of all sorts of things that could be said. Who starts here with this and why? What does he think this is going to accomplish? Tithes, contributions. Nine, you are cursed with a curse. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I still think that is a weird response. How can that be? People trying to raise money are grateful for those verses. They're perfect. We know from the rest of the book, these people 
They've rebelled against the Lord in all sorts of ways. There were moral failures, sexual sins, crimes against the poor. We haven't even looked at them all yet. Compromise in worship, idolatry. And if one of these people came to you, if you were the pastor, and they said, well, what should I do to set? I want to set my life in order. I need to return to God on so many levels. What should I do? What would you say? Well, get serious about tithing. I wouldn't. It's very striking. You see, this is the first time in the book, the very first time in the book so far, that this subject of returning to the Lord is dealt with. People have had all sorts of questions, usually directed at arguing with God and proclaiming their innocence. That's what they're usually doing. How have we wronged you? How have we failed you? This is the very first time somehow they're saying, how how can we return? How can we fix this? And right in the face of that specific question, almost unbelievably, God says, well, honor me with the whole tithe, 310. Not bow and pray, read the law, go to temple, start start tithing again. And what I want to look at in the rest of this teaching is, how does this make sense? What does this do other than raise money? How can God bring up the subject of money and material possessions at this point? Why does God say that this tithing is the starting place for the spiritual renewal of these people? What I want to try and show you is how the tithe is related to something bigger than just people ever since I've been in the ministry. People squabble and argue about the tithe and Old Covenant, New Covenant, what's the requirements, all of that stuff. And I've been convinced right from the beginning that the the approach is wrong. It's asking the wrong questions. These lives are all messed up on dozens of levels. And God, speaking through the prophet, says if they're faithful in the material realm, it's going to straighten out their lives in a way they can't imagine. That's the part that fascinates me. And that's the part I want to look at. Three. The principle I'm going to make, just in case I don't make it clear, let me start off with it. Here's the conclusion. The tithe is related to the fall and undoing the effects thereof in our lives as followers of Christ. So point number three, tithing and the fall of man. I want to look quickly. I've done this before. I want to look over some very old truths from the earliest chapters of the Bible. So before the law is ever given. So forget old covenant, new covenant. That's the beauty of this. We're not talking any of that. We're talking about creation, the way God made the world. Before any places of worship needed maintaining, before there was any priesthood that needed supporting, before there were any temple taxes for providing food and keeping the temple up, before any of that. Here you have this principle. I have three texts. They're all together, though. Genesis, so this is A. Genesis 1, 27, 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
male and female, there's two, male, female. He created them, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the relationship was a conjugal relationship right from the beginning. Can't be two people of the same gender. That just doesn't work for a conjugal relationship. Do I need to go into details? You've all got that. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here's man, male, female, created by God with incredible potential for vast stewardship, for dominion over all of God's creation. There's this tremendous amount of joy and freedom. Adam and Eve exercise over the environment in which God had placed them. It's an incredible creation event. It's different, too. God creates Adam. All through the creation... uh, I shouldn't get into this. All through the creation account. Let there be light. There was light. Let there be this. Let there be that. You never see God saying, let there be man. Text changes. All of a sudden, it changes, and God creates man. He's, He's involved making man and woman in his image and likeness. Not like the fish of the sea. Not like anything else that was brought into being. So, there's this great creation. That's the start. B, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They didn't die the same day, but death, death. Please notice that this is more than a simple eat or don't eat issue. This was an issue of recognized rights. In effect, God was saying, everything is under your dominion, everything is within your reach, everything is for your use, everything is for your enjoyment, except this small portion. That is not for your use. That is not at your discretion. That is off limits. A small portion is not for your touch. A small portion is mine and mine alone. So here's what happens. Right off the bat in the garden, there's a test. God says, I'm paraphrasing, everything else is yours for your use. This part isn't yours. It's not for your use. It's mine alone. It's separate unto me. And here's the most important point of all, and it simply must not be missed. Man's uh, dominion and proper relationship to God's portion determine success and rulership over everything else in the garden. When they disobeyed, you know what happened? They're out of the garden. 
In other words, when they do not honor God's part as separate, before any law is given, this is not Old Covenant, New Covenant. This is creation. What is God trying to lay down here? Their success in everything else is tied to their respect for a portion that is not their own. So the test is crystal clear. There's a part of the created realm that marks off the distinction between the creator and the creature. And the test is, what will man do with the part of the material realm that God says is off limits to his own discretionary use? What's he going to do? Text number three. Now, the serpent was more crafty, Genesis 3, 1 to 5, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made and said to the woman, pause. Do you ever, in your heart of hearts, have this question? Would not somebody think it strange if a snake came up and started talking to you in Hebrew? Isn't that hard to believe? I thought about that for a long time. And I'll tell you why it doesn't quite work that way. You and I live in a world where since we've been kids, we've seen and heard and read. We know snakes don't talk, right? I mean, we just know snakes crawl on the ground and they don't talk. That's the only thing we've ever seen of snakes. Imagine if, imagine if you had never seen a snake before in a brand new created order. I know it's hard to do, but just pretend. You've never seen one. You don't know what a snake is. Would you be as shocked if the snake came up and spoke? You'd have no reason to be shocked, would you? What are you comparing it to? Snakes don't talk. What you, you wouldn't say that. Just thought for somebody that's just going to go home perplexed about that whole thing. Did God actually say, last part of verse 1, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, it seems so natural, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Didn't say anything about touching it, but you have to be careful with what God says. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So Satan convinces Eve first, and Eve convinces Adam that they will, listen, they will be better off if they have not only their designated portion of God's created order, but God's restricted portion too. They need the whole thing. He convinces them that they will secure themselves better, they will have more. They will be better off for the future if they ignore the difference between what is God and what is theirs. And, of course, the history of mankind in God's created order is very simple. In seeking to acquire God's portion, they ended up not only losing what they thought they might gain, but they lost what they had been given before as well. Everybody hear that? They didn't just lose what they thought they might gain with that portion, but they lost 
fruitful dominion over everything else as well. Now, point number four, and I'm almost done. Why does God start dealing with these people? Now back to Malachi. Why does God start dealing with these people? How can we return? And he says, bring the whole tithe. I think we're in a better position to learn why these instructions were given to these people wanting to return. It's all about establishing proper priorities in life. God begins with their tithes because the starting place with mankind's rebellion is a failure to listen to God about what was God's and God's alone and what was theirs. It's about establishing priorities. You're really not in a position to return to God in any area, right? They've got a whole list of sins. You're not in a position to return to God in any area of life until you're prepared to honor his rulership over the material realm of your life. Because you do a lot of things outside this church. So do I. We buy things, we process things, we make decisions. Most of the decisions we make have to do with the visible material realm of this world. And that's where I have to start showing that my commitment to God is real in that realm, not just in reading Bible verses on a Sunday night in Cedar View Community Church. They're going to have to return to God in all sorts of areas. But to show that they're serious about returning to God in all of those more spiritual areas, God says, prove to me that in the whole material dimension, your kingdom here on earth, prove to me that you really do put me first. And you'll be in a position to honor me better in all those other areas as well. People don't mess up spiritually in church services. Preachers don't mess up spiritually preaching sermons. But a lot of preachers mess up their lives, and a lot of Christians mess up their lives, and it's usually in an area of their life that we don't directly link to our faith. Because faith has to be made real in the visible, material aspects of life. How are we going to return? And God said, tell them to start bringing the whole tithe. Not everything they have, but that portion that's mine, God says. They need to start honoring me with that as token that they recognize my lordship over all of their kingdom. That's the best thing you can do. Please don't ever hear it as, well, we've got to pay bills. Come on, people, let's give. That misses the point. Rather, we all want to untangle the threads of the fall that wrap around our covetous hearts. And the road out starts by reversing the road in. And everyone said, 